Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. As I mentioned in the last episode, I'm going to be taking some time off in September. If you're listening to this on the day it's issued, I'm in the woods somewhere and will not be responding to any emails for a bit. It's going to be great. But in the interest of both making sure you get an episode this month and making sure to cover a very important topic leading up to our discussion of fascism, I decided the best thing to do is reissue an old episode, German Unification. I'm sure you can imagine how this will be relevant. Reviewing the episode, I was pleasantly surprised by it. I stand by most of the things I said, which I wasn't necessarily expecting, given that it was first released in August of 2014. The audio quality is not up to my current standard, but the information is mostly sound. That being said, I'm going to pop in at each break to mention a few things in preparation for talking about fascism specifically. The biggest thing I would do differently if this was a brand new episode is, like Italian unification last month, I would focus more heavily on the central theme of a creation of a national myth. Like Italy, German identity in the 19th century is attempting to establish itself as just as homogenous and ancient as any other European power at the time. And like Italy, that establishment will be artificial, sort of a fake-it-till-you-make-it approach to patriotism. This is worth keeping in mind as you listen. The other thing I'd like to refocus on is the overall issue of German ambition as a new state and how Otto von Bismarck's unique skill as a statesman both enabled that ambition and set it up for failure. If a state's ability to play at the level of other great powers is dependent on one unusually skilled person rather than overall strength, then they aren't as strong as they might feel while that person is running the show. Germany may have been successful, but it was anomalous success, and chasing that level of success into the 20th century would be difficult and perhaps disheartening. So with all of that in mind, let's begin. Welcome to HI 101. I'm here with my good friend Dan McGinnis. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about the unification of Germany. This idea was actually uh, Dan's, so thanks for the idea, Dan. No problem. I'm really looking forward to this topic. Um, Me too. I had forgotten just how interesting German statehood really was until I started going back and looking into it a little bit more for this podcast. We're in for a treat. We're good. Yes. Now, before we get to the nitty gritty, though, there's a couple of things I just kind of want to talk about. Normally, with key concepts, I like to sort of work them in as we go. But some of the things that we're talking about tonight are so kind of nuanced but also very important that I just sort of want to run over it really quickly beforehand. And 
central to the idea of Germany becoming a country in 1871 is this idea of what is a country? Uh, yeah. You know, that's a fair question. And it's actually a really difficult question because it's one of those things that we don't really bother to uh, like define in yeah. our in our in our lives at all. It's the closer just... you look, the harder, the more slippery the word becomes. Right. And specifically the thing that we're looking at is a concept called nation state. And you hear that sort of used often interchangeably with country these days. Not always, but many times it's it's interchangeable. So I want to talk a little bit about both of those things and sort of what they mean, especially in the context of the story of Germany becoming a nation state in 1871. The first thing I want to talk about is something called Westphalian statehood. Okay. This is, uh, it's a big giant name. It comes from the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648. That's the end of the Thirty Years' War. And Westphalian statehood was this idea that was laid out in the Treaty of Westphalia of what a state is. And basically what they say is that a state is a supreme power in a region and that no state has the right to infringe on the sovereignty of any other state. The reason it was outlined this way is because the Thirty Year War was all about trying to make all the other countries into your religion. It was just a giant 30-year party. Just sure. Huge Europe-wide party. Yep. And basically that's what it was about. It was it was looking in on your neighbors and going, listen. We have no economic problems. We have no political problems. In fact, we're incredibly similar, often, you know, miles apart. Um, a, sorry, a small number of miles apart. Could be cousins, no problem, but they're the wrong religion. And so that's enough to go and... Yeah. Gotta die. Yes, yeah, it's time. Yeah. And after the 30 years war settled, they'd been fighting for 30 years and they kind of decided that's enough. We need, to, we need to find a way to not do this. That's a big theme at the end of wars. You'll find that off, often after a war, there's just a big conference to find out how to not have war again. Basically, uh, they reach the hangover point and yeah. say, we, I'm never doing that again. There's the morning after. There's oh so much regret. Yeah. Yeah, and they make themselves this promise. So part of this Westphalian treaty was this promise of, listen, we can't, just decide that we don't like what's going on inside someone else's borders and make that a reason for war. That's insane. So we have to learn not to infringe on the sovereignty of each other. What sovereignty is, is just the utmost, utmost authority in a region. Okay. Uh, this idea of a legitimate power. Now we can keep going down this rabbit mm -hmm, hole, but mm -hmm. let's, let's kind of leave it there for now. Okay. The other idea that we kind of have to approach is what a nationality is and that's an even trickier part than what a than what a state is than what a sovereign state is because nationality is this sort of ideal that no one really quite makes they never quite get there but sort of nationality there's there's matters of ethnicity tied up in it there's matters of culture tied up often matters of religion things like that and this idea of of being one people a homogenous group. Yes, a homogenous, homogenous group, exactly. And sometimes you get kind of good examples if you look from really, really far back. Like you look at France, and France is the country of France, and everyone in France speaks French, and they're all French people, and they have similar... Except you look closer, and it turns out that 
France in the 1700s, maybe 40% of people spoke something other than French as their main language. And there are religious differences throughout the state. There are groups that would rather not be part of France. Like that's, that's really common when you look a little bit closer. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Canada today. With, Easy with to understand. Yeah, Quebec within it. Um, Spain with the, the Basque region. There's separatists within Belgium. Like it, it happens everywhere. This idea of nationality is really fragile and very hard to define. That being said... There's this idea in the 19th century of the nation state being this ideal political system because their thinking on it is what a government is there to do is to represent the people or to act in the people's best interests, right? In a state, ideally. And we're talking in very... Is that what they were thinking at this point? We are talking about a a a um, post-enlightenment Europe. So there are at least aspirations of a state representing the people okay and it's supposed to be a give and take relationship you give the state taxes they give you protection it's much more complicated than that obviously and in practice it's usually much more corrupt than that and i think we all know that and is at this point is the the state essentially still synonymous with a person a person a state sovereign in the person of a queen or king in most cases yes and is it the queen or king defining these things rather advantageously for themselves? Oh, of course. Mm. Always. Okay. But if we look at it sort of on a conceptual level, which is sort of what we're talking about when you're making a country, because when you're talking about making a country, you're very idealistic anyways. It's not until you kind of get into the thick of things that the ugly practicalities kind of come to the surface. Now, this idea of a nation state is basically... Okay, if the if the government is there to act in the best interest of the people, the best way for it to do so is if all the people are the same and they all want the same thing. And the best way to make that happen it's is so- if each state is representative of one nation. It sounds like an engineer's solution to the problem. In that it completely disregards the human equation. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It, it absolutely is. It's a very functional uh, way of looking at statehood. But it was also seen as the best solution at the time. Keep in mind that we're talking less than a century after the French Revolution. We weren't very good at figuring out how international politics worked at that point in time. We weren't great at it. They, they still can could sometimes boil down to family arguments. Absolutely. What you get is this sort of shift in the 19th century towards nation states and a balance of power. And this idea is let's make a bunch of nation states that are approximately the same size, or at least as close to the same size, that if one of them gets uppity, the other ones can kind of do something about it and kind of nip any problems in the bud. Let's not let anyone be so powerful that they can simply dominate all of Europe. And we're talking about a very Eurocentric view here, of course. Before this, you're looking at all sorts of different systems. You're looking at empires, you're looking at city-states. You're looking at uh, multinational states, so states that have fairly sizable minorities within them, by which I mean the ruling class may come from maybe 30% of an ethnic population, but they've got four other sizable uh, minorities within the country that they're ostensibly supposed to be ruling over. It doesn't always work so well that way. Shocking. (laughs) And under this system, 
Generally, rather than having a balance of power, you're looking at something called spheres of influence. So you have larger powers that sort of generate pull over smaller powers, but these smaller powers have the option of moving from one sort of protective power to another. So you'll have a country like France, but it'll have eight tiny duchies beside it that are sort of allied with France because it's convenient for them to do so. But hey, when things are looking really good with Italy, maybe they'll go and hang out with the Italians for a while. Has France not... Uh, absorbed these little duchies after the end of the 30s war because they didn't want to prolong fighting like why why would those duchies continue to exist that's a really good question often it's because they have existed independently for so long that they haven't needed to turn to france and say listen can you just take the reins from here and they've never been so bellicose that france has just simply taken them in conquest it's not really advantageous for France to go out. I'm using France, but it yes. could be any great power at this point. It's not really advantageous for them to go, hey, there's a tiny one. I might as well pick that one off and send out a bunch of soldiers and be like, this is ours now. Looks like kind of a A little bit. But on the other hand, if this hypothetical tiny state on the border of France and, say, Prussia happens to join Prussia in a war and France wins that war... Well, maybe they just might roll over this tiny state. No, oh, because... And know, it's France now. Yeah. Maybe they picked the wrong side. Maybe they picked the wrong side. It's really easy for some of these small principalities to just sort of lay low or pick the clear victors and stay relatively independent. I mean, obviously, they're going to have some obligations to, the, to these larger powers. But in the end, they're still sovereign. They're still sovereign states. They still have the ultimate authority within their region. This might be too big of a question for right now, but (laughs) is that the answer to the question, why Switzerland? It is. It actually is. That's the reason why Switzerland. That's the reason why Luxembourg. That's the reason why Denmark or Netherlands. These... I mean, sometimes they were originally two or three smaller states that kind of got together. In the case of Switzerland, I don't know exactly, but I do know they have something like four uh, official languages. I would not be surprised if they were several small principalities at one point that fused together to make Switzerland. Hmm. But the reason that Switzerland exists now is exactly how these smaller places would exist back then. Switzerland does it by just staying out of everything. I'm not getting involved. And as a result, it's never been just sort of rolled over in the course of larger conquest. Aloofness as an evolutionary advantage. Now, mind you, it's not always the best way to go. Often it's more advantageous to pick a side and stick with it than it is to stay neutral. Um, I saw a really great quote from Machiavelli on this, actually. He basically said, if you don't pick a side, you look like a coward to the losers and you look uh, noncommittal to the winners. Whereas if you pick the the winning side, then you look like a valuable ally to the winners and the losers, well, it doesn't really matter that much. You look like you are part of the group of people who defeated them and are included in the people that they now fear and respect. Hmm. Not always the best way to rule Machiavelli's uh, curriculum, but in this case, I think he's making a really interesting point when it comes to dynamics between very small states. Interestingly, dynamics that mirror individual human confrontation psychology. Yeah, definitely. The next one that I want to talk about quickly is what a confederation is. Confederation and federation kind of get mixed together a lot in sort of colloquial 
use, but they're very different things. A federation is what you see with the setup of Canada or the United States, where you have a state that have a number of independently ruling bodies within it, but those bodies exist through the permission of the larger sovereign power. So the provinces of Canada, they exist and they're enshrined in our constitution, but really they're there because the constitution has written in that they're going to let these other powers exist within it, just so that it doesn't have to deal with some of the things that they can take care of. So they exist as a means of devolving power. Exactly. Whereas a confederation, the best example I can give you of that is the European Union, where you have sort of a very tight treaty between sovereign powers, which is actually mutual. It's coming from both sides uh, of each relationship within the power. And any power within the confederation technically has the right to dissolve that relationship at any point in time without actually affecting the confederation as a whole. If for some reason tomorrow, I don't know, say Norway decided to just drop out of the EU because it's what was best for Norway, the EU would still exist. Mm -hmm. There wouldn't be a problem there. But these states have found, uh, in this case, an economic benefit to having a very specific type of treaty and working closely together on certain issues. Confederations were a little bit more common when we're talking about the 19th century because we are talking about so many smaller states. So that concept of more of a symbiotic relationship between sovereign states is really important to understand when we're talking about what happens with Germany. The final thing that I wanted to mention before we get into these things, my goodness, we've been going for a long time without even really talking about Germany, is this idea of the relationship between war and politics. And again, this is a small topic. <laughs> it's tiny, tiny. Don't worry, we'll blow right through it. I bring this up because it's one of those concepts that we have a very specific view of in the 21st century, and it hasn't always been the case. And it's important to make the distinction because this is a time period where that paradigm shift is actually occurring. In 1832, a German man named Clausewitz wrote a work called On War. He had been a general in the Napoleonic Wars. He had seen a lot of warfare, and he basically wrote the art of war for Europe. It's an incredible read. It's very, very interesting. But I'm going to just very, very briefly touch on something that he's saying. What Clausewitz said was that the only people who can legitimately conduct war are states. And he said, war is the continuation of politic by other means. And what he's saying here is that at one point in time, all it took to go to war is having enough guys that you could round up with a bunch of pointy sticks and kill a bunch of other guys that were causing you trouble. That's feudal Europe in a nutshell. What Clausewitz is saying is that Europe has changed and now that's not good enough anymore. Passion isn't a good reason for war. War has turned into another tool in the politicians' arsenal that, that they can use to further their own, their own ends. It can be a, a bigger concept than it used to. Yes, and yeah, it, it's been sort of incorporated into a, a larger thing and is no longer just sort of subject to human passions. And I mean, obviously, he's very aware of the fact that that's a major part of warfare, but he's saying that that 
sort of primal aggression can be channeled in a productive way and that that's sort of become the new norm of warfare now was he just describing what is or what he was he also saying what should be both he thought that this was better because he was saying that number one this means uh, restriction on warfare because again you can't just grab a bunch of your buddies and go kill someone and call it a war that's now murder was it because war had some sort of cachet of, of legitimacy in what way in terms of what it was before or what it had become what it at had Klaus become that drawing that line between murder and war that you know you can't just run off and kill someone with your pointy sticks because you're mad uh, but if you're a nation state doing the same thing well that's legitimate because you're conducting war and so it's it's useful to have that distinction in uh, in his, his contemporary time yes that's exactly what he's going for and the other thing that he's saying is basically we have alternatives to war war isn't the only thing because now he's kind of categorizing war as being a political tool as a way for nation states to further their their own interests he's saying well yeah it's one way of doing it but let's face it there's a lot of other things that you can do before you get to full pitched battle i kind of bring all these things up again it's a little bit disjointed at the moment it's a little bit out of context but these are all really interest or really important things to kind of keep in mind as we talk about germany incorporating into a nation state so uh sorry clausewitz wrote on war after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, when about would that be? On War was published in 1832. Okay. It was actually posthumous. His wife uh, published it. But he wrote it basically between the end of Napoleonic War and I believe the early 1820s. So he spent some time really reflecting on this and thinking about it. It's technically unfinished. It's there, There's enough of it there, though, to get a very, very firm grasp of the philosophy of warfare, if you want to call it that. Again, a very interesting read. It's not necessarily for everyone, but it, it does have... It, it is very interesting in terms of how war was being used as a political tool in the 19th century. So, how about we move on to the topic at hand, Germany, and get going on that. We've been mentioning Napoleonic Wars a couple of times, and that's actually where we're going to start on this, is 1806. In 1806... The Holy Roman Empire, which was still around in 1806, by the way. Still going strong in Rome? Not in Rome, actually. Still still got Caesar there? Uh, well, they, they, did, they did call their leader Toga. the Kaiser, which is the German version of the word Caesar. <laughs> Anyways, 1806, the Holy Roman Empire is defeated in battle by Napoleon. Where, where was the Holy Roman Empire? The Holy Roman Empire was Central Europe. So the Holy Roman Empire is basically everything that we think of now as Germany, more or less, but also included large portions of Austria. It included big chunks of what's now Poland, which isn't even a country at this point in time. Had been, was incorporated by both Russia and the Holy Roman Empire. Oh, Poland. Yeah, poor Poland. It, it, the, the Holy Roman Empire had a pretty good spread and also down into Northern Italy. I hate to, to delay us even more, and this might be too big of a question, but how do we get... We, we have Rome, mm-hmm. you know, that has some problems. Sure. One or two political things. 
and then it gets moved. The party gets moved over to uh, Constantinople. Uh huh. And uh, we've got a new Roman Empire that's totally the legit Roman Empire mm-hmm. that's not in Rome. Mm-hmm. How do we get from Byzantium and Constantinople up to middle of Europe for the Holy Roman Empire? So this is an entire topic in and of itself. It could very easily fill an entire show. Here's the short version. Roman Empire falls. Roman Empire in the West, as you mentioned in Constantinople, it continues on. That keeps doing its own thing, and that's now out of the picture. What we do have is all of these old Roman provinces that are now sort of governing themselves, right, in, in Europe and, in, and especially in what is now Germany. Uh, but also to the West in, in France, what they would have called Gaul. The ashes of the empire. Basically. And what happened was that they slowly sort of either conquered each other or were amalgamated for various reasons. Especially in Gaul, they, they seem to centralize a little bit more quickly than in Germania. In the 10th century, a guy called Charlemagne comes along, unites a whole bunch of these old provinces, makes this an incredibly large empire... Goes around, kicks some butt, calls us the Holy Roman Empire. Because it's cool to be Rome. Because it's cool to be Rome, but he also saw... I, I mean, there's a lot of Western history that's about finding a connection between Rome and you. Because Rome pretty much killed it. They did a pretty good job while they were going strong. He was looking at this going, we've got all of the old Roman provinces. They extended somewhat down into Italy. And I mean, honestly, at the time of Rome's fall, Rome wasn't even the capital of Rome anymore. Mm. They weren't using it. It was kind of an old backwards town. It was more symbolic than anything else. So they're looking at this going, if you look at a map of the old Roman Empire and you look at a map of what we've got, it's basically Rome. So we might as well call it what it is. It is the new... It is a new Rome. And this time it's it's united under Charlemagne, who was a Christian a strongly Christian man, and he decided that this was blessed by God and called it the Holy Roman Empire. Now, after, I believe it was two generations that kind of petered out, but then a new ruler came along about 80 years later, really kind of hammered it home as the Holy Roman Empire, got the Pope to crown him emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, which definitely seals the deal, right? And then basically you've got 800 years of Holy Roman Empire. And The Holy Roman Empire was sort of this loose amalgamation of Germanic states. Never super centralized. So there wasn't a Rome in in effect? No, the seat of the Holy Roman Empire moved around a bunch of times. But it it moved a number of times. It wasn't a strongly authoritative, uh, strongly centralized political system. What you had was a lot of duchies, a lot of principalities, a lot of, you know, very small states... I mean, we're looking at over 300 uh, states that made up the Holy Roman Empire at one point in time or another. Yikes. So there's a lot of discussion around why, say, France turned into one body, like political body, and why Holy Roman Empire didn't really. And there are a lot of theories, but it kind of comes down to we're not entirely sure. We don't have a great reason. It just didn't. Hmm. So that's enough on the Holy Roman Empire. Again, it'll be a great show someday. Oh, I look forward to it. 1806, Napoleon rolls over the Holy Roman Empire. What up? Just like he rolls over all of Europe, just constantly. And the emperor at the time of the Holy Roman Empire, or at the, at the time of this battle, 
Francis II, uh, who's a Habsburg, by the way, just to let you know, they were rulers of the Holy Roman Empire since the 15th century. Yeah, familiar, familiar name. You, you may know it. Basically, it, it, they're, they're, de- they're defeated really badly at the Battle of Austerlitz, and Francis II kind of decides, honestly, I have no country left. And he abdicates, technically, abdicates the throne of the Holy Roman Empire, effectively dissolving the Holy Roman Empire, makes himself Emperor of Austria. Now, Vienna is where the seat of the Holy Roman Empire had been anyways, so effectively all he really did was move the goalpost back from sort of the western reaches, you know, the Rhine, all the way back into Austria, so that he was a little bit less likely to get stomped by Napoleon. Fine, Napoleon, I'm taking my ball and going home. Essentially. Now, the Austrian Empire was nothing to sneeze at. It included all of what's now Hungary, down into the Balkans. It was a huge territory. But it did leave a lot of territories in the lurch because all of a sudden where you used to have the might of the Holy Roman Empire behind you, guess what? You're Luxembourg. And Napoleon's coming. <laughs> Good luck with Napoleon. Good luck with Napoleon. <laughs> It'll turn out great. Luxembourg still exists. That, that hey, was the best example I could... Luxembourg's got that going for him. <laughs> it was the best example I could bring to mind of the sort of scale of state we're talking about here. Yeah. Because they were tiny. They were really, really, really small. They had very small populations, next to no armies. Their only real strength lay in their ability to work together under the emperor to sort of work towards a common goal. That's all they had going Being for Being part of a cool club. Alone, not so hot. Really, really not so hot. The first thing that Napoleon does is he creates what's called the Confederation of the Rhine. And essentially, he said, okay, all you tiny guys there, you are now the Confederation of the Rhine. You work for me. Raise me an army. And they said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) You're a country now. It's cool. Everything's solid. We're cool now. But they're not even... guys. But they're not even a country. They're a confederation. Now, mind you, they're they're forced into the confederation by Napoleon. And while they could technically withdraw from that confederation the consequences really you know if you make a list of all the pros and cons it's probably going to come out in your favor to just stay in the napoleon confederation it works better con angering napoleon now the two (laughs) it's a bad con the two states that stayed out of this confederation are austria as i mentioned it became the austrian empire and basically after the defeat they basically said we're going to stay out and Prussia. Prussia is huge. At some, at some point, look on a map what historical Prussia looked like at about 1800. It's a large country. It, is, is it most of Germany? It takes up basically the top half of Germany, more or less, and extends far east into Poland. It's a large territory. Okay. That's, yeah, that's a pretty rough idea of what you're looking at here. But it's, it's big. And it's powerful. Prussia was founded by Teutonic Knights. Prussia... That sounds impressive. Prussia was based on a system. They had a king, but they also had a class of nobles called Junkers, who were very militarily inclined. When you were a Prussian noble, you went to officer school. That's what you did. And their army was incredibly powerful. Now, again, not powerful enough to take on Napoleon at the height of his power, 
So they basically said, no, we're not joining your stupid confederation, but I'll tell you what. We'll just stay out of it and you leave us alone. Sound cool? Cool. So they, obviously, uh, but to confirm, they weren't part of the Holy Roman Empire. They were neighbors with the Holy Roman Empire. They had been part of the Holy Roman Empire up until its dissolution. Oh, yes. But as soon as as soon as the uh, as soon as the Battle of Austerlitz comes around in 1805, and the Holy Roman Empire is dissolved in 1806, it doesn't matter. There's no there's nothing for them to be a part of there anymore. It's gone. So when when the when an empire falls apart, and and I mean that's. That's the thing that I didn't really clarify as much when I talked about different systems earlier. But when an empire falls apart, you're left with constituent states. And with no sort of overarching emperor to oversee these states, you are now your own sovereign authority. It's as if, you know, it's as if the, the White House was wiped off the map and all of a sudden it meant that there were 50 sovereign nations in North America. And guess what? They are on equal terms, and they are sovereign, and they have no business getting involved in each other's affairs whatsoever. That would that would turn out well. I I feel like that would be great. <laughs> Texas would not do anything. They would start nothing. I mean, I wish I had led with that example earlier because it kind of gives an idea of just how devastating the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire was on these Germanic states. That yeah. Because you had a loose federation of states, kind of like the United States now, and it just poof disappeared, and all of a sudden there are all these tiny things, again, like if the the White House had just gone away, and yeah, you're gonna have your Texases, but you're also gonna have your Rhode Islands, and they're not looking so great. They're really not looking so great. So once Napoleon was ultimately defeated in 1815, there was this sort of power vacuum. Because really the, con- the, the the confederation of the Rhine wasn't a political entity that was going to last. It was essentially a vassal state of France through Napoleon, right? So when Napoleon was defeated, all of these nations or all of these tiny states are kind of back where they started. They've got no leadership whatsoever. They're kind of on their own, and they're a little bit scared because they don't have the political clout to really last in this system, especially as bellicose as it is at this point in time. And Something that went along with the defeat of, of Napoleon is, again, another Congress. They, like, you know, another war, they finish, they feel, feel a little war hungover. You get the Congress of Vienna. And the goal of the Congress of Vienna was, again, no more war. Never again, please. <laughs> we'll fix it this time, guys. And they decide to do this through what they called the, the Concert of Europe. They def- decide to basically divide up Europe between five major powers... Austria, Prussia, Russia, France, and Britain. And everyone's going to kind of fall under these spheres of influence, right? Because these are about equally sized, about equally powered, and if one of them goes nuts Napoleon style, the other four should be able to take them. And this should keep things in line. But they were worried about Prussia and Austria, because they were both very powerful. And they created something that was called the German Confederation. And this was basically a loose confederation of Germanic states, again, and included parts of Prussia and Austria this time, but not all of Prussia and Austria because they owned territory that wasn't traditionally German. The idea being that there was, there, there would be sort of this buffer in between Prussia and Austria to keep the two of them from butting heads. It would 
try and give these Germanic states some protection by being in this confederation, as loose as it was. And ultimately, you would end up with this sort of five spheres of influence in Europe that shouldn't be able to go to war effectively against one another. And they were hoping that this was going to hold together. The problem being, the Germans already, even at this point in time, thought, listen, we're all Germans. Why don't we just make a Germany? (laughs) What's so hard about all of this? Guys, we've got all the parts right here. It's ready to go. We we can assemble. They fit in perfectly together. If you look at it on a map, all the pieces, jigsaw, Mm -hmm. right together. If you put them together, it looks like Germany. (laughs) Surprisingly. This was called the German question. And they were so intent on this idea that Germany should be its own state for their own good. Because if they could just become as powerful as France, now it's Germany's century. We'll come back to that issue in just a minute. So far, most of this episode has been intro, so there isn't a lot to add at this point, but there are two major things I do want to say. The first is that my two-minute explanation on the continuity between the Western Roman Empire and Holy Roman Empire is not good here. Uh, I did a whole topic on it, episodes 27 and 28. Those would give you a much better grasp of its founding than uh, what I presented here if you were interested. The second is that I'd like to point out some of the similarities and differences in the inception of unification movements between Italy and Germany. Both are freed from the grasp of the Holy Roman Empire by the Napoleonic Wars, and both saw the Napoleonic era puppet regimes as potential models for a way forward. The ironic difference between the two at this point in the story is that the German states, traditionally territory of the Holy Roman Empire, had essentially been disavowed by the now Austrian emperor. The Italian states, which had been a more recent addition to the empire and culturally quite distinct, had that emperor's authority reasserted over them. So while both Germany and Italy saw an early separation from the ancient systems under Napoleon, and both would try to rebuild a new old way of doing things, the Italian struggle was primarily one of independence from a foreign power. The German struggle instead would be an attempt to find order from being left on their own. All right, we're back on HI101. I'm here with Dan McGinnis. Yeah. And we're talking about the unification of Germany. Uh, when we left off, basically Germany had been the opposite of united. It had been smashed into a whole bunch of little pieces. And already people were kind of feeling like, hey, let's put it back together again. One of the first things that happened within the German Confederation is this thing, and please forgive me because I don't know German. I wish I did. It's such a... A unique sounding language. This thing called the uh, the Zolverin. And the Zolverin was created initially uh, within Prussia. Basically, they said, okay, we've got all of these borders that things have to cross if we're doing trade. Let's come up with standard currency, and let's come up with a standard toll rate, and let's get our roads in order so that it's not like it's the 1200s anymore. Insert joke about German efficiency. Essentially, yeah. It turned out this worked out pretty well for Prussia. It was going pretty good. Free trade agreements yep. often do. And it ended up working so well that by 1834, basically all the Germanic states had jumped on board with the Zolverin. Willingly. They were going, sure, we'll use the same currency. Sure, sure, we will standardize our toll rates. This sounds fantastic. Let's get some roads put up. Let's get the trade booming. 
This sounds awesome. That was was that championed by Prussia? Yes. Yeah. That was championed by Prussia. The German Confederation was really interesting. I just wanted to note it's it's a lot bigger than just sort of the Germany as we think of it today. There were uh, we mentioned uh, Luxembourg in there. Denmark was part of it. Technically, uh, the King of Britain was part of the German Confederation because they had hereditary lands in Hanover. Oh, right. Now, when Queen Elizabeth came to the throne in 1837, Hanover's uh, secession laws... Salic law prevented her from inheriting Hanover. Exactly. So they were no longer part of the League at that point. But up until then, technically, the German king was part of the, the German... Or sorry, the, the British king was part of the German Confederation, which is kind of interesting. So they're all kind of getting on board with this free trade agreement... They're pushing for road infrastructure, steamboats up and down the Rhine, because but before this, it was people with barges and workhorses. It's hard to kind of describe just how behind the times Germany was during the period where it was the Holy Roman Empire, because it was so decentralized, it had no real incentive to develop infrastructure. Hmm. That's certainly not reminiscent of any other country, maybe... 60 years later. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Note, I'm talking about Japan. Yep. But, I mean, like Japan, they just industrialized really quickly. They started encouraging the the production of steel, like the steel industry within Germany. And they got very, very good at it. And like Japan, they were completely content to stay within their own borders then. Ooh. But neither of those are true. What? There was the Bavarian Ludwig Railway in 1835. It was six kilometers long. It ran from Nuremberg to Firth. That was 1835. Within 25 years, there was over 11,000 kilometers of rail within Germany. <laughs> they didn't mess around. <laughs> was that their test track? Essentially. We'll get this six kilometers really good, guys. It was proof of concept. It was basically them saying, let's give this rail thing a try. Let's see if it works for us. And it did very well. Build a thousand of those. (laughs) So already you see through kind of economic ties, these small states are kind of drawing together because it just makes sense. I mean, you're not going to make it in Europe in the 19th century if you don't have some sort of economic treaty that's allowing you access to the purchasing power of the majority of the continent and the bargaining power of all of these small states collectively is far greater than what say again luxembourg would be able to pull off on their own poor luxembourg poor luxembourg you also get a lot of interest in german culture at this point in time people are really looking for things that are going to tie german-speaking people together because there again there's this idea of of the german nation Right? Because there's no country called Germany at this point. There is no Germany. When you talk about historical German figures, they weren't born in Germany. They were born in some tiny principality you've never heard of. And it eventually became Germany, and Germany adopted them as part of their culture. Look at Martin Luther, for example. Mm. He was not German. He was born in Saxony, I believe. But it became part of Germany, and he's held up as a national treasure. So what people were looking to tie this identity together? Well, I'll give you a really good example. The Brothers Grimm. They were going around in this period of time. Actually, uh, 1812 to 1857, Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm were traveling around the countryside. Those are such good names. 
It's probably like Jakob or something. They were traveling around the countryside asking people what folktales they knew. And they were writing them down and they were noting similarities and they were noting differences. They were writing them down exactly as people were telling them because they felt that people who had come before them looking at folktales were destroying part of the culture by taking the oral element out of the storytelling. So their whole idea was, we're going to write this down exactly as it's told to us. And they would record slightly different versions of each of these tales from different regions of Germany. And they would sort of look at the differences and sort of celebrate the diversity of German culture, but really focus on the fact that all of these stories are the same and show how there's this sort of commonality within German-speaking people that they all sort of share this primal, you know, pre-industrial cultural heritage. This wasn't coming from the top. This wasn't a leader thing. This was the people of Germany were trying to find ways to integrate together. Very much Because they wanted to be one culture. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, certainly there's a lot of problems inherent in this, namely that they weren't specifically one culture. They were tied together by language, certainly. But the culture, say, in Prussia was very different than what it was in Bavaria, for example. I mean, even religiously, these states varied widely. Again, Bavaria was a strongly Catholic state, whereas Prussia was extremely Protestant. You had small principalities that were observing Calvinist values. I mean, this was part of what the Treaty of Westphalia was about, right? So Westphalian statehood, not infringing on sovereignty of other states. They're looking for this common identity, but there are certain things that have kept them apart over the years that are sort of blocking this idea of a unified nationhood. That being said, it certainly didn't stop people from looking for it. It's just that there are a lot of practicalities of, of creating a singular identity that you know, they're kind of being held up by. The other thing that's kind of going on at this point in time is that, and, and we're talking about, at this point in time, we're talking about the 1840s. I mean, we're talking 30 years after the Napoleonic Wars. A big reaction to the Napoleonic Wars was sort of a, general conservatism, sort of a very, a focus of maintaining order because Napoleon was seen as a reaction to the revolution. So they were basically saying, if we keep sort of to the old ways, it will help us to avoid what happened with Napoleon. Did they then cling to monarchy as a result? Absolutely. And I mean, monarchy in sort of the wider sense, we're not talking just kings. Well, a lot of these people are dukes or princes or barons, what have you but certainly looking at a noble class to sort of rule over people. By the 1840s, this crazy idea called socialism is really starting to hit home in Europe. And in 1848, everything kind of comes to a head in February in France, but in Germany in March. And 1848 is kind of called the the year of revolutions in, in Europe because kind of similar to what we saw with the Arab Spring, just all of these crazy grassroots protests and and uprisings came around that had sort of similar values behind them, namely liberalism in the the classical sense, the small L liberalism, so personal freedoms and things like that, and uh, sort of humanist equalities. But they weren't coming like there were no specific leaders beyond like very very local and very very small numbers they were just sort of happening everywhere but enough of them happened at the same time that the established rulers got very scared about it 
it was so bad actually that in France the uh, I forget which Napoleon I was I believe Napoleon the third was actually deposed the empire fell and they created something called the Paris Commune I don't know if you've ever heard of that but for a fairly large chunk of time in Paris there was a functioning communist society they took over Paris they ousted a Napoleon and they actually lived in pure communism for a while I do remember that actually yeah it, it ended great for them <laughs> yeah there's a reason why there's a reason why France isn't still communist <laughs> well in Germany a lot of this stuff took on a very nationalistic flavor there were sort of protests in favor of let's unite Germany but let's do it in a way that's for the German people and not just for the German leaders let's not make this about sort of furthering the people that are already above us but let's take matters into our own hands let's as German people create our Germany so it wasn't quite a uh, overthrow sentiment it was less overthrow and more let's build something great together which is, as far as revolutions go, kind of a nice sentiment. Yeah. It, I mean, it seems like the only reason that it turned out that way was because they were a fractured state. Absolutely. And that, the, that fractured nature gave them something to build towards. One thing that you'll notice about grassroots revolutions is that they're not super organized. And the slower they are to organize, the worse off they're going to be. If you don't get... A structured leadership in place if you don't get a common goal in place very very quickly you're basically doomed to failure most of these revolutions in germany didn't really go anywhere they got quashed pretty quickly by the ruling elite as revolutions tend to the place that it got furthest was actually in frankfurt which at the time was as more a city-state than anything it was sort of self-ruling at the time it wasn't it wasn't part of a, a, a bigger state at that point but what they did was they set up a, a quasi-parliament they wanted a representative democracy they wanted they wanted universal suffrage which wasn't a thing in germany at that point in time they wanted all these relatively progressive things when you say it wasn't a tangent uh, when you say that it, universal suffrage wasn't a thing i mean given the period obviously not women oh yes unfortunately yeah. but by that do you also mean it was only like landowners and that was a big qualification for having suffrage at that point in time not and yeah you have to kind of qualify that they were looking for universal male suffrage kind of bummer this is history it's the way it goes (laughs) universal white male suffrage keep reaching for that rainbow guys yep (laughs) get there and this uh this frankfurt assembly formed and they went basically we have two options here. There are two main states that can protect us as Germans if we want to make a Germany. There's Austria, who are very powerful, but they saw them as, and here's the sort of ugly side of nationalism kind of poking its head out. They saw them as less German than some of the other options because so much of the Austrian empire was composed of non-Germans, of Slavs and the like. Mm. So they said, Prussia is basically the only way we have to go. Prussia, you're big, you're German, you've got a nice army. Can you just... Can, can How about you can become you emperor? Us, can you call us sometime? <laughs> and they we actually really like your army. And they actually offered the... Uh, they, they offered the king of Prussia the emperorship of all the Germanies. 
They said, you should be our emperor. We've drafted a constitution. They actually wrote up a constitution. And in 1850, they offered, they offered the crown to the sitting king of Prussia. And he politely declined, saying that his royal peers in Europe probably wouldn't take too kindly of this, but privately to others commented that he didn't want to scoop a crown from the gutter. Ooh. <laughs> so the Holy Roman Empire, we both keep mispronouncing that. Which is odd. That's okay. The Holy Roman Empire wasn't quite as well regarded now that it just fell apart that wasn't what he was saying what he was saying was he refused to take a crown from the people because he oh. saw himself as he's well that as so many sense. monarchs he saw himself as ruling by divine right yeah anointed by god not by steve down the street exactly so crown from them no thank you i'm good he said <laughs> this, this was just fine <laughs> i'm cool guys Basically, by refusing that, that was the end of the Frankfurt Assembly. That's it, it. It kind of died off after that. I mean, it lasted almost two years, which is impressive for anything that happened during the 1848 revolutions. Not a lot of stuff came out of it, except for just sort of a social shift. But there's not a lot that you can point to practically that came out of the 1848 revolutions. Things like, say, the Communist Manifesto came out of it. Things like further acceptance of socialism, further acceptance of liberalism, workers' rights, ideas like those got better traction out of it, but not a lot of actual laws changed. Yeah, I mean, the world didn't look much different in 1850 than it did in 1846, if you know what I mean. That's got to be the biggest letdown. Spend two years drafting this thing, getting it ready for the king. Oh, he's going to be so excited, you guys. Oh, let's let's give it to him in a wrapped box. We got this. We got this constitution drafted. Here you go. Oh, oh, thanks, guys. Uh, I've already got a crown, though. Uh, <laughs> this one fits pretty well too. I'm good. Just had it buffed last week. Maybe you can maybe you can take this constitution back and get a refund. It was a huge letdown for these people. I mean, when you join a revolutionary movement. You don't expect to lose. No one joins it expecting to lose. Especially in that way. Especially in that way. Now, there's this idea in German history called Sonderweg, which is this idea of German exceptionalism that Germany had to have its, its history play out the way it did. And I don't subscribe to this for fairly obvious reasons in that I think very, very little about history is inevitable. You could say almost nothing. But people who subscribe to this school of thought point to 1848 as the beginning of the Sonderweg. They say that if Germany had just united in 1848, everything would have gone differently. But the moment that the elites quashed this revolution in 1848, it set Germany on this path that ultimately leads to World War II. Which is why I kind of look at this and go, no, this is ridiculous. Let's take a step back. But I mention this to kind of highlight just how important 1848 was to the idea of Germany as a country. Even though nothing really happened, a lot of people saw it as a missed opportunity. They looked at it and said, well, there's our shot. We blew it. They had a tough time with that. For the next little bit, we're going to look fairly specifically at Prussia because 
in a lot of ways, what we think of as German history is Prussian history. And we'll get a little bit closer to that as we go on. Mm. But Prussia's reaction to being offered this emperorship of all the Germanies was to create its own constitution in 1850. It decided, yeah, we'll do kind of like a parliament. Was that kind of in a, in a sense, trying to, I mean, you said you were going to get into it, but is that avoiding a, uh, a more unfriendly peasant uprising within Prussia, maybe in a few years? Yes, uh, we'll, get, we'll get a little more into that, but okay. the idea of realpolitik really plays strongly into this. This, this parliament was technically elected uh, members, but, and, and I should be clear, this is only within Prussia. They weren't imposing this parliament on anyone else in the German Confederation, but they were kind of looking at this going, okay, so maybe our absolutist monarchy isn't quite going to cut it anymore. One of the people that was present for the 1848 uprisings and for the drafting of this constitution was a guy named Otto von Bismarck. You may have heard of him. Yes, I think so. German statesman, very influential. He wasn't really, he didn't have any major power at this point in time, but he was definitely, he was he was involved in the drafting of the constitution. He was very active in this new parliament, drafting laws, and he was extremely pro-monarchy. He was very conservative in the small c sense of the word and that he liked order and he liked, you know, the social structure that Prussia had at that point in time. He was for a strong military. He was for lower economic controls, things like that. He was, he was very classically conservative, but he was, oh, and I, I should mention at this point, we're talking about King Wilhelm the first. He was, he was the one that refused the, uh, tarnished crown no that was actually wilhelm's father i couldn't remember his name i think it was friedrich the fourth i'll have to double check on that one though i didn't have it written in my notes and i don't know why so disappoint anyways wilhelm the first appointed bismarck his minister president in 1862 now the position of minister president was essentially the reverse of what a prime minister is So a prime minister is basically you have a representative body. They pick one person from among their peers to basically say, this is our leader. This is the mouthpiece for this parliament. And if there is any other sovereign power involved in that country, they're kind of the sort of the personification of the liaison of those two bodies. Kind of ish. The minister president was basically Wilhelm going, "Okay, well, we have a parliament. Here's my guy in parliament. Pay attention to him, everybody, and do what he says. As if the Governor General of Canada were part of the House of Commons? Not only part of the House of Commons, but also the leader and proposed all of the legislation and everyone had to do what they said. Seems legit. Super democratic. Super democratic. Such justice. In terms of people with that level of, of power... Bismarck was not a bad choice. He was an incredibly intelligent man. He came from the Juncker class... So he was trained in in military, but he was also very highly trained in politics, in humanities, extremely smart. I'm going to stop you there. Uh, The Junker class? Yes. The Junkers were... It actually comes from the words Jung and Herr. So it it meant young lords. Young sir. Well, yeah, young sir. And the Junkers were 
as, as I think I mentioned earlier, they were all trained militarily. They were sort of independently wealthy, but expected to actually be competent as well. So it was kind of this inter- interesting combination of, of wealth, but also the capability that can only be bought with wealth, which is a lot better than wealth that is just sort of squandered and you know mostly incompetent and sort of fallen into by birth. Sounds kind of reminiscent of the height of Roman society. I agree. I wouldn't necessarily model my ideal society off of it, but it it generally isn't a bad way to get very strong leaders. Because if you're expecting the people with money to buy the best education that they can buy, they're going to get a pretty good education. And somewhere in there, you're going to find someone that's a pretty smart person to actually lead competently. And that person was Bismarck. He was the one from this whole group. Everyone born at this point in time, Bismarck, just floated to the top. Bismarck was a big proponent of this sort of realpolitik that I was talking about, which is this idea that the reality of a situation and your reaction to it is far more important than any sort of ideology or hard line. Never set your mind to something so firmly that you can't go against that if it's to your benefit. So while he was very strongly conservative, while he was very religious, while he was extremely strongly for the monarchy, he was willing to go against these things, you know, his own personal convictions, if it was for the benefit of Prussia. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that you see with successful statement ever since then, kind of using Bismarck as a model because they realize that's kind of what you have to do to get ahead is just do what's best and not just what you believe is right. No pragmatism. Yeah. I mean... Kissinger was a huge fan of Bismarck. You don't say. And say say what you will about Kissinger. He uh, he he turned a situation to his advantage whenever he could. One of the earliest things that he did uh, as minister president was there was this issue in in these two territories called uh, Schleswig and Holstein, where there were two people who had claims to these territories. One of them was the king of Denmark. And one of them was an independent duke who was actually German. Prussia was a very close ally of Denmark, and they weren't super close with Austria at this point in time, even though they were part of the same confederation. There's just a lot of tension between the two powers because they're both very strong. Hmm. And you have issues like with the the Frankfurt um, Parliament kind of choosing between the two as which one is more German. They really felt those tensions. However, even though Prussia was allied with Denmark, he looked to a 10-year-old treaty, said, listen, this independent duke should get these territories. Denmark, I'm going to have to say no. And actually allied with Austria against Denmark in this matter, which completely goes against the hard line of Prussia, right? Once they had wrested control of these two territories from Denmark, basically gave Holstein to Austria and kept Schleswig for Prussia and said, this is the way this shakes out. If Denmark can't have them, we will. Little for you, little for me. And what you see here is that they've strengthened relations with Austria. They've gained a new territory for themselves. And weakened Denmark. And yeah, made an enemy of Denmark in the process. But they're weaker now. So, oh well. Is Denmark. This isn't to say that, you know, Bismarck was a good person. Obviously, this was a bad thing to do. He just 
you know, kind of screwed over Denmark. Whoops. That's the kind of thing that Bismarck would do, though, because he saw the situation and he went, how does this shake out best for me? I mean, if game theory was a thing, he would have read nothing but. Probably played a decent amount of chess, too. Oh, I would imagine so. I would never be... Who would win against Bismarck? Oh, that'd be so fun. Supercomputers, that's about it. Honestly, I, I, I can only imagine. Now, Bismarck was also very interested in this sort of idea of German unification, especially as a Prussian, because there was two ideas of how a unified Germany would look. Uh, Greater Germany and a lesser Germany. Greater Germany incorporating all of the German territories, including Austria, including Denmark, and including all of these little places that are sort of outside of it. And this lesser Germany was this idea of a Germany that excludes Austria. And the reason that this came up is Austria's non-Germanic holdings. They were always a sticking point. And as far as Prussia is concerned, Prussia would prefer a Germany without Austria because a Germany without Austria is a Prussian Germany. They basically own most of Germany in that case. So Bismarck's looking at this going, let's shoot for this Prussian Germany. And what's more, unlike those fools in 1848, I have a vision of how this can look. I have a vision of what this Germany can look like. It is a Germany that coincides with all of uh, with all of Bismarck's values. So it's Protestant Germany. It's a Germany that is militarily strong, that is industrially strong, that is a major player economically on the European stage. And you'll notice that a lot of these things sound like the Germany that we know as Germany. But how does Bismarck get all of the duchies and such to buy into those values, specifically the religious ones. I'm so glad you asked this question. With three moves. First, he has to eliminate the possibility of a greater Germany. And to do that, he has to turn all of these states against Austria. In 1866, Austria reneges on the agreement about Schleswig and Holstein. They say, you know what, instead of giving one to you and one to me, let's go to the German Confederation and ask all of these states what we what they think we should do with them. And Austria is hoping that the Confederation is going to look at Prussia and go, ah, they're getting a little big, we're a little worried about them, let's give it to Austria. Austria is kind of the big sleepy but benign empire on our east that we know and don't really mind too much about. Bismarck said, nope, you're breaking a treaty, let's go to war about this. It's on. And he has legitimate reason to do that he has a very legitimate reason to do it he just broke it or they just broke a treaty they just denied prussia a territory that they were just legitimately given under treaty by austria and in the process of giving it made prussia look kind of good because they kept one for themselves but they gave one to austria yeah exactly for austria's help in the danish conflict so basically Bismarck looks at the situation and goes, I can't lose. War is on. Oh, and by the way, at this, whole, at this point in time, he's been in, in talks with the small states that are on their way to becoming Italy, made a secret alliance with them against Austria. You I'm never not wanna, even joking. You never want to wake up and find out, find out that Bismarck made a secret alliance against you. You're going to have a terrible day. Austria had a slightly bigger army than Prussia. It didn't have twice as big of an army, and now it's fighting on two fronts. Italy in the south, Prussia in the north. The Prussian commander was actually incredible. His name was General Moltke. And he chose his battles very carefully, picked only sure victories, just dismantled the Austrian army. 
it was it was not even close to a fair fight. It was incredible. So this division of forces, this slightly better command of the army, all of this turned into a war that lasted seven weeks. They called it a blitzkrieg. Did they? A lightning war. That's a that's a catchy phrase. Mm-hmm. So out of this, they get new territories, they get new allies. They actually dissolve the German Confederation out of this because it had involved Prussia and Austria, and that's not really an option anymore. So they formed something called the North Germanic Confederation in 1867. This included most of the German states. Did it also include part of Austria? No. Did, did Prussia take any of Austria? There were some small territorial exchanges. There wasn't a lot, but yeah, there's, there's always land chi- changing sides in these conflicts. But they weren't trying to take over Austria. No. All they were trying to do with Austria is eliminate them as a threat to German unification. Okay. Basically, they don't care if Austria is just sitting over there as long as they're not getting in their business. Because they don't want to destroy Austria because that would make them look bad because they're destroying a fellow German. Right? All they're trying to do is neutralize their power. Fight a legitimate war, declaw them, and let them sleep it off. Exactly. So what this really did was give German states a side to rally to, right? And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the prince, right? Like you need to pick a side in order to look strong. And if you don't pick a side and you just sort of stand back and watch, you're going to look at this. So, so you, have, you, have, you have three options. Either you sided with Prussia and you just won a war and you feel great and Prussia's the best. Or you sided with Austria and, oh crap, I really need to be afraid of Prussia now. They're going to do to me what they did to Austria, who is so much bigger than me. I better play nice with Prussia. I better call them up first, you know? Or there's the people who decided to take the wait-and-see method, and they waited and they saw Prussia is the side to go with. Prussia looks really good out of this. Bismarck wins. Bismarck wins. I kind of wish Bismarck talked in the, th- in the third person while he was alive. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. So, that's kind of... When I said... Th- three moves. Move one was kind of the deal with Schleswig-Holstein with with Denmark. He was trying to set up a situation there. Move two was taking out Austria in 1866. Move three was basically him going, I need an issue that will unite all Germans that are under my influence to a common cause. Because without a common cause, what reason do they have to stay allied with me? I've got them now, but that's a temporary thing. I've had influence over states before. Need some sort of, uh, some sort of other, some sort of other. Yeah, that would be great. That would be fantastic. In 1870, Prince Leopold, who is actually a cousin of of Wilhelm's, of course, was offered the Spanish throne. The Spanish throne had been vacant for a couple of years. They had died without an heir, and they needed somebody to come rule them. And usually, they just kind of look to the family tree and go who's closest. They offered it to. This, this cousin from uh, Hohenzollern Sigmaringen? Probably how you say that. Definitely. I didn't know it, and I did not know you sp- spoke fluent German. <laughs> I don't speak fluent English. Now, Spain, as you may know, is on the border of France. Occasionally. And the French kind of have an interest in what goes on in Spain. And one thing that's, that France would really not like is... A French king in Spain, or a German king in Spain, and all of Germany 
like on either side of it. They don't like being a German sandwich. It makes them feel anxious. Being a German sandwich frequently makes them feel anxious. So things start kind of getting a little bit tense. France kind of tells Germany, no, you're, you're not putting a German king on the Spanish throne. That's not going to work for us. The French diplomat to Prussia had a conversation, a very informal conversation, with Wilhelm I. Wilhelm's secretary, as a good secretary does, took minutes, sent them to Bismarck, who, you know, is, is minister president. He should see these things. It's a matter of state. Bismarck looked at the telegram. He edited it, and he sent it to the newspapers. This is called the Ems Dispatch. He didn't change the content. What he did change was leaving out just slight pleasantries that were exchanged between the two of them. Made it seem tense? Made it seem very tense. Made it seem like Wilhelm had been rude to the diplomat. Made it seem like the diplomat had been rude to Wilhelm. Germans said, the French have been rude to us. (laughs) That's what they said. Exactly like that. The French, rude, that will not stand. The French said the the Prussian king disrespected our diplomat and the, the eve of Bastille Day, of all things. <laughs> there, was some, there was some nationalistic fervor going on. And they went, you know what? That's it. We can't have any of this. And France declared war on Germany. That's it. Fight the Germans. In three very deft moves, Bismarck had his other. He had a rallying cry for Germany. But first, he had a war to fight. One character that I didn't introduce in this topic, or in Italy actually, and likely should have, was Austrian diplomat Clemens von Metternich. Metternich was traditional conservatism's number one champion in the early 19th century. He believed that the French Revolution was a mistake, that most of Europe was tired of the revolutions, and that the people would genuinely be happier serving a ruler appointed by divine right and knowing their place in the world. As such, he spent much of his career fighting liberalism wherever he could find it, anywhere in Europe. This is rarely a direct thing when it comes to Germany, but the chilling effect Metternich's influence had on the spread of liberalism in general did mean that much of what I identified as grassroots cultural creation is in reality carefully disguised cultural revolution in lieu of political revolution. A great example of this is the Hambacher Fest. In 1832, a number of journalists and academics had planned a demonstration in support of freedom of speech and freedom of the press, but the government found out about it and banned the gathering. In response, the protesters organized a non-political county fair at Hambach Castle, which is kind of a weird thing to call a county fair. Between twenty and 30,000 people attended and heard speeches about rights and constitutions and German unification based on popular sovereignty. And perhaps most surprising of all, they kind of got away with it. There was no crackdown by the state. Hiding political organization as cultural events became a useful tactic for those advocating for unification politically, but also some of what I was identifying originally as emergent phenomena were actually carefully hidden attempts to create a codified German identity. This isn't to say that none of it was emergent, but if there was an avalanche, there were people who pushed the first few snowballs on purpose. I'd also like to very briefly point out the comparison between Prussia's role as taking the lead in unifying Germany and in the process creating a Prussianized German state 
And what we saw with Piedmont Sardinia doing the same in Italy last month, getting criticism for Piedmontization. There's a significant north-south divide in both new countries, and there is an imposition of values on formerly independent regions in the name of unification. This is less to say anything about inevitability, and more to point out that there are cracks that exist in the idea of unification through expansion that seem common between the two. National unity is one thing, but using the ideas of national unity culturally to expand state power seems to exist beside it very comfortably. This is HI101. I'm here with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And last time we talked, we were talking about Otto von Bismarck and his machinations within Europe to sort of unite Germany against the common enemy being France. And when we left off, I believe France had just declared war against Germany. Now, this was over a matter of succession in Spain, which is kind of a weird reason for France and Germany to be going to war, but something, something international politics. Europe in the, that era, time period. And notice that this is the kind of thing that they were trying to avoid by creating sovereign statehood. You don't get involved in other states' affairs, because when you get involved in other states' affairs, war happens. And this was something that had come from the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648. This is something that had come from the Congress of Vienna in 1815. Stay out of everyone else's affairs and everybody will be happy. But this this power vacuum in Spain sort of forced other countries to get involved in Spain. We've got to figure out the Spain issue. And as a consequence, it gave France a reason to go to war with Germany, which Bismarck was more than happy to take up. He had been looking for a common enemy to unite all these Germanic states against. And here it was. Let's fight France. And still almost purely in the service of making a unified Germany. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he he had... There were certain other goals he had in mind. There were a couple of territories that are kind of sandwiched in between France and Germany that have switched sides a number of times and he see, he saw those as German people who needed rescuing. But ultimately in Bismarck's mind, he was a Prussian first and a German second, and he saw the unification of Germany as being the advancement of Prussia. He certainly wasn't afraid of a good war. In fact, he had started several in the last five years. He was fine with them. Yeah, okay. But like we had talked about with uh, Clausewitz, he saw it as an extension of political power. It was just a different way for political entities to interact. And it was the most straightforward one, but also the most unpredictable one. Now, a thing that Clausewitz kind of talked about was that war isn't an art and war isn't a science. And people will try and tell you both of those things, but that's not true. War is a social exercise. War is purely an interaction between human beings. There's no sort of symmetry as there is in art there is no structure as there is in science when it comes right down to it it is two people and they are interacting as human beings and as human beings always have and Bismarck knew this and appreciated it and recognized just how unstable that is so it's not as though he was eager for war and he had that that famous speech where he said that the interests of Germany would be forwarded uh, by blood and iron What he was saying wasn't, we're going to kill everyone. He was actually referring to two things. One was Prussia's 
iron industry. It was literally iron that he was talking about. We will beat them through economic means and through production means. And by blood, he meant we are we are willing to use the means of our production if we need to. We will defend ourselves. We will we are willing as a people to put our vitality towards the furthering of Prussian interests. Blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Blood and iron came across as very bellicose. <laughs> People didn't much like it, but that's not really what he meant by it. He wasn't saying war at all costs. He was saying, if we need to, but we have other means as well. The Franco-Prussian War, to put it mildly, didn't go well for France. In the first month, the Prussian army, I should say at this point the German army, because it was the United German army that he was fighting with here. It wasn't just the, the Prussians. He got all these tiny states to contribute to the German army. He created a united German army to fight against uh, France. A coalition of the willing? You could call it that. But it's not, not an actual state yet. Not at all. Not at all. Within the first month, they captured Napoleon III. Oh, as well as both of the major French armies. Okay, that sounds that sounds like it could go better for France. Could, could have could have had better things happen. You know, I think France gets kind of a kind of an unfair reputation when it comes to warfare, because you know Napoleon was a pretty great warrior. Like, yeah, he he lost at the end, but he did he did do a pretty good job. Everything before that. France was the preeminent army on, on the, well, I shouldn't say on the earth, but definitely within Europe. They were incredibly formidable. But they kind of got on a bit of a losing streak in the last 150 years, and it's they have not lived it down. Just, just unlucky. Things keep happening. It's almost never been their fault. They Even can't. when you look at what happened to them in World War One. I, I mean, the battles were just being fought on their home soil. World War Two, that, they, that was they just... built their fort in the wrong place. They're, yeah, it was just forts. It was just a mess. If it, anyways, we're getting far off topic. Poor France. Basically, the rest of the Franco-Prussian War was an extended siege against Paris. They didn't end up taking Paris before the end of the war. They they actually held out for quite a long time. But I mean, once you've lost both of your armies and your leader, once your siege is at your capital and your capital isn't on the border, it's a big problem. <laughs> You're in a losing position. It's hard to generalize things like this, but German people, when you look at sort of the German nationality, they got a bit of a rush out of beating the French so fast and so hard. National, like feelings of, of, of nationality were running very, very high during the Franco-Prussian War. They were looking at this and kind of going, we finally feel like we've actually made it on the world stage. They don't feel like a, a third-rate power anymore because France was the guy to beat, and they were beating him. In the midst of all of this, they stopped in at Versailles, and in the Hall of Mirrors, Wilhelm I was proclaimed German Emperor. If there was one room in the world that I wish I could just see all of the things that had ever happened in, it's the Hall of Mirrors. The number of world-changing decisions that happened in that place is, is unbelievable. And this is one of them. He was proclaimed German emperor. And in doing so, he, he actually abdicated the throne of um, Prussia. And there was a new king of Prussia, his, his cousin. Oh, 
so they didn't they didn't dissolve that part of the monarchy that that part of the government of Prussia. No, and actually, in in making him emperor of, or, sorry, German emperor, they were very specific on the wording: German emperor, not emperor of the Germans, because that would imply people like Austrians as well, but German emperor. They made Germany, and they gave an emperorship to him. Exactly, he is an emperor, and he is German. Let's let's not get all fancy about this. So he was made emperor, and. In the process of doing so, the country of Germany was founded. They didn't think a lot about what that was going to look like exactly. They were going to wait until the war was over to deal with all the specifics. Let's just say that Bismarck had a pretty good idea of how he wanted this to look. Do we know why they chose to crown him before the war was over? Versailles has quite a bit of import. There's a lot of sort of historical gravitas that goes along with that place. And they were there anyways. And it was a very calculated move in that they felt like there was never going to be a better chance than when they had the French on the run. And and what better way to dump on the French than use their own former glory palace, the seat of the Sun King, to crown their new emperor. That and... Bismarck was very interested in the idea of the founding myth. He believed very strongly that the story of how a nation comes to be is extremely important for the people within the nation because it gives them a common thing to be proud of or to even just a thing to know. The fact that they all know that this is where the country I live in came from. And it is as a conquering people, you know, pushing back the French invaders. Let's keep in mind, this is a war that France started. So that makes them look pretty good too. Good work, Bismarck. They founded this nation in the process of defending German soil against the foreign invaders. It was a pretty good time to start a country. There haven't been many better ones. I can't blame them. (laughs) If I were in Versailles, I'd be a little tempted to form my own country too. It's it's very it's it's hard not to. They say you walk in there and you just get overwhelmed with this feeling of uh, declaring sovereignty. Yep. There's not a lot of other stuff to say about the war. To be perfectly honest with you, it was over so fast. I know I kind of teased it a little bit. Alsace and Lorraine, which are the two main territories that switch a lot between France and Germany, were surrendered to Germany actually against Bismarck's wishes. He didn't want them back. But I thought he was going to defend them. Well, that's what he told everyone. (laughs) Bismarck. What Bismarck says and what Bismarck wants are often two very different things. He actually believed that keeping Alsace-Lorraine as sort of a buffer between France and Germany was a good idea because it kind of keeps the Rhine River as a solid border between the two countries, and he felt that that's the way it should be. He was also worried that by taking Alsace and Lorraine, it would foster some resentment within France, and they would see this as a reason to basically fight them another time. They took our land, we'll have to take it back. And he was worried that if they went as far as to take that territory from them, it would create like a lasting enemy. They also exacted reparations upon France. They did some math. They exactly matched, but it 
considering for population, they exactly matched Napoleon's reparations on Prussia in 1807. And that's not going to come back against the Germans in the future <laughs> at all. That one, again, was definitely pandering to the crowd. That was him going, hey, Germans, right? Huh? Am I right? So the victory didn't go as exactly, exactly as Bismarck wanted, but he was in a pretty good spot. He was, everything had kind of played out exactly the way he wanted. You'll notice I'm talking a lot about Bismarck and not about Wilhelm I. Wilhelm I was one of those lovely emperors who knew exactly what he was capable of and delegated the things that he was bad at to more capable people. That's very unusual. Wilhelm was good at showing up to state affairs. He was good at receiving foreign dignitaries. He was good at acting as emissary to other countries in an official capacity. He was bad at politics, so he got Bismarck to do it for him. And in my mind, that's one of Wilhelm I's greatest accomplishments, is stepping back and letting a better man do the job, even though he wasn't born to it. Was Wilhelm good at warring? Was he good at military things? Yeah, he was a relatively capable officer, but he also had quite a few capable generals under him and was more than willing to listen to their counsel. You look at General Moltke during the uh, the war against Austria and his success in, in waging that campaign. That was them going, Moltke, you're the best guy for this job. Go do the job, please. That's what we pay you to do. Again, his, his best accomplishment was going, I'm in over my head, somebody else do this. That's a wonderful trait. It's, it's incredibly admirable, and it's not something you often see in emperors. No. Let's hope it's hereditary. <laughs> we'll see. We sure will see. <laughs> Apparently you know something about what's coming. What? Huh? Maybe a little. One of the first jobs that Bismarck had in front of him was figuring out what this new German state looked like. He opted for a bicameral parliament, which means two houses, and kind of went for a solution very similar to what you would see, say, in Britain, just a little bit closer to the original state of things. So there was a common house, which was called the Reichstag, and that's all elected members of parliament based on districts within the different states. And then there was the uh, Bundesrat, which was made up of usually not directly, but emissaries from the various nobility within the new Germany. So Prussia would send a certain number of royal, royally appointed dignitaries. Bavaria would send a certain number. Smaller states would get only one, whereas Prussia would get a fairly large number. The reason I keep talking about Prussia is not just because the emperor came from Prussia and because Bismarck is kind of playing all of these puppet strings, but also Prussia itself makes up about about 40% of the new Germany. The rest of that being dispersed over 30-some-odd other states. They're very politically dominant. They're kind of the primary culture of Germany. Absolutely. And all those other cultures are close enough culturally that it's not usually a big problem. Generally. Super generally. You run into some issues. But... In general, Prussian culture, they start doing a really good job of kind of making Prussian culture into German culture. I forgot to mention also that when Wilhelm I was made emperor, he made Bismarck chancellor of, of the, the government, which was basically really similar to the minister-president position in that he's kind of appointed by the emperor to sort of run things. 
So even though there's some sort of representation uh, in the parliament, there's definitely some fairly direct control by the emperor in even day-to-day matters. In particular, that would mean that the head of the legislative branch of government was appointed by the emperor? Yes. Okay. Yep. Which is very different than what you see in most democracies. Very, very different. And there's a reason for that. Bismarck got right on trying to unify Germans culturally as much as possible. He called this the Kulturkampf. Kampf meaning struggle. You may have heard that somewhere. Somewhere. First thing he did was compulsory schooling in the German language and standardized curricula across the entire country. He wanted them learning the same things. He wanted them learning specifically the same history. He wanted, but, and, and I mean, that, that sounds kind of sort of totalitarian, which in a kind of way it was, but it wasn't quite as despicable as it sounds. One of the other things he wanted to encourage was mobility between the German states. He wanted it to be so that if your father had to move for work for some reason, and you moved from one end of Germany to the other, and you walked into a state-run school, you could pick up right where you left off. He wanted to eliminate as many barriers to, to movement within the state as possible. He was somewhat anti-Polish. Just a little. A German? Uh-huh. Really? Keep in mind that Prussia constituted a lot of traditionally Polish areas, had a lot of traditionally Polish ethnic citizens. He wasn't a big fan. And it's hard to put that into context today. Racism against Poles? Yeah, I I can't. I I mean, just racism racism in general. But remember, and believe me, I'm I'm not trying to forgive Bismarck's views or anything like that. But remember this ideal of the nation state. He's trying to create one government that represents one people as effectively as possible. And having a minority in that nation causes significant problems. And that's sort of where the nation state falls apart in every country ever. They need some sort of solution to this problem. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I won't go there. But essentially, yeah, it was it was a problem for him, and he needed to work something out. Now, I mean, he never went as far as deportation or anything like that, but he did make the German schooling mandatory. Even for the Poles? Yeah. He had no problems with them speaking two languages as long as one of them was German, because he wanted them all to identify as German. Okay, well, that's, I mean, that's... I don't want to give the impression that he was a very progressive man. No, but on the scale of these things... Um, he was doing okay for 1870. Edu- mandatory education for the people he didn't like is, you know, <laughs> a good sight better than other things that happen later. That's true. That's true. Now, one of the biggest political problems that he faced, as well as cultural, was the fact that, as I mentioned at one point, Bavaria was strongly Catholic, very, very Catholic, and culturally somewhat different than the rest of Germany as well. And while they were more than willing to sort of incorporate into Germany, they weren't too happy about some of the more strongly Prussian identity things that were being imposed on them. They actually created a political party called the Catholic Center Party. Bismarck didn't like the Catholics. He was strongly Protestant. And It's not quite as just sort of blindly prejudiced as it sounds. To give you some context, in 1968, the First Vatican Council occurred, and Pius IX instated the doctrine 
of papal infallibility. Nobody quite understood what that meant yet. We come back to the idea of sovereignty. Bismarck saw papal infallibility as a desperate grab by the, the, the Vatican, who, by the way, had just lost all of their little papal kingdoms to sort of the growing Italian unification movement, basically had like no longer had any political power. And a lot of what Vatican Vatican I was dealing with was sort of this transition from being a ruling power that owned kingdoms and armies and things to a solely spiritual one. And he saw papal infallibility as sort of a last-ditch effort to be able to put their hands in international politics. And he was worried that somehow the Pope would be able to speak in an infallible manner and require German citizens to say, rise up against the, the government. And he saw this as a threat to German sovereignty. So, I mean, the idea of Bismarck being worried about this doctrine isn't necessarily crazy because he's got a baby state to take care of here. And this looks like a very real outside threat and one that he can't really counter through diplomacy or even really through warfare, because what's he going to do? Kill the Pope? Don't, don't kill the Pope. It's bad for PR. Yep. Killing Pope, never good. Never good. So the idea of him being worried about that, I think, is fairly legitimate. It's fairly understandable. Yes, his own personal religious beliefs play into that. But that's a fear that sticks around for a long time. Even when John F. Kennedy was being elected, there were worries about him being Catholic because they were worried that the President of the United States was beholden to a foreign power. That was a real thing that happened. Bismarck took it a little bit further, though. Oh, let's see. What did he do? In 1872, he broke all formal diplomatic relations with Pius IX. Okay, yeah. He just didn't want messages going back and forth. He was sick of talking to the guy. He unfriended him. Blocked him on Facebook. In 1873, he put the May Laws into effect. It made the appointment and education of, of priests a matter of state put it completely under state control. You had to be approved by the German state to become a Catholic priest. Probably an easier sell when called the May Laws than mm -hmm. the Religion Subversion Laws. Then there's the Congregations Law of 1875, which abolished religious orders altogether. So any <laughs> any monks or nuns. So not, not like priests. So you didn't just get rid of the, the, the priesthood, but to, to belong to... A nunnery, or even to be be a Jesuit, he didn't want any Jesuits in the country. In the country, like kicked them all out. But what about those monks that brew wine or beer, or beer? Yeah, what? What? I actually don't know what happened to them. Keep in mind, it's slight spoiler. These these laws didn't last that long, so it didn't put that much of a kink into the whole thing. But the Congregations Law it also ended state subsidy uh, ended state subsidies to churches. And removed all religious protections from the German constitution. He was serious about this. Apparently. And it's, I, I bring this up because it's kind of interesting that, you know, we're talking about 1870. It sounds like they're kind of going in a modernizing direction. And all of a sudden, something that we consider as essential as freedom of religion trampled all over it. But again, he's doing it for this idea of unified Germany and for, for state sovereignty and for balanced Europe. We still hadn't quite got to the point where sovereignty was, in, sovereignty was invested in the people themselves. Exactly. It, he saw it definitely as his job to protect that for them. In 1878, 
the Catholic Center Party was starting to make it too politically difficult to keep hammering away at the Catholics. There, they got something like one third of the parliament, which makes it really, really hard to oppose what they want. Were there, was that because of these laws? Were, were there that many Catholics in the unified German state? It's a mix of both. In general, Germany, because it's not unified states and because of 30 years war, in general, states further south tended to be Catholic. States further north tended to be Protestant. So there's sort of a north-south divide in religion. But it's not, it's definitely not perfect by any means. Basically, when the Thirty Years' War all shook out, whatever religion your ruler happened to be is what the state religion now is. That's the benefit of sovereignty. The ruler gets to decide. They're the decider. So, but as a, I mean, as a reaction to all these laws, Catholics who might not normally have voted with the Catholic Center Party are going, hang on, I need somebody representing me in Parliament to take care of this. Hence the rise of the Catholic Center Party. Okay. So Bismarck backed off a little bit. There was a new pope. Leo VIII was elected in 1878. Managed to negotiate away a lot of the laws. He was just a lot more easygoing. Bismarck <laughs> liked him more. <laughs> he was a cooler pope. Well, I mean, Pius IX had just been so hard line on all of this stuff that he was unwilling to make any concessions. Basically... Basically, all he needed was Leo VIII to go, listen, man, I'm not going to tell the Catholics to uprise against you. That's all he wanted, and Pius IX had never done that. Uh, I don't know, Bismarck. I mean, we'll, we'll have to see. <laughs> you know, situations change. Yeah, essentially. And part of his, part of his education, uh, like outside of just the, the Catholic Party stuff, part of his whole education thing... And, and culture initiative in general, the culture conf, was this expansion of national history to include all Germanic states. So he made Prussian prominence a big part of the narrative. He constantly hammered home how great Prussia was. But if something happened in an obscure little, you know, uh, duchy that had a population of 5,000, but it was noteworthy somehow historically, he was willing to hold that up as a German achievement. So basically, he took 1870 and he just started building back through the years and saying, no, this is a German thing. This is a German thing. We accomplished this as a people. We're doing pretty good. Because you have to remember, Germany, Germany is younger than Canada. Germany is younger than Italy, which is younger than Canada. Germany is a new state. Wow. Germany is a very young state. And keep in mind, this is a little off, but keep in mind that from 1945... Like for, for 45 years, it was again separated out. It hasn't had that much time to be a country. Total, not a lot at all. Something that I personally don't think about much. It seems like such a unified state, and a lot of this goes back to what Bismarck was doing with this culture conf. I think it also is easier for those of us born uh, at a time where... When we became aware of world politics, Germany was all back together again and everything was fine. I mean, I have a piece of the wall, but I don't remember it falling. No. It's it's easier to uh, to think of it as just, that's you know, Germany, the whole thing, that's Germany. The reason I have that piece of the wall is because it, it grounds this piece of history that I know happened, but I personally have no reference for, where people even 10 years older than us probably saw that on TV. They probably remember when it happened. They probably saw the headlines, and we don't really have that. 
for us, Germany is just as united as somebody born, say, 20 years after this unification would have found Germany because Bismarck was trying so hard to make Germany a thing, which it had never been before. And he was incredibly successful at that. Bismarck, stop trying to make Germany a thing. (laughs) But he was streets ahead. He made it happen. (laughs) He wasn't just effective culturally, though. He was also very effective politically and on the international scale. We will get to that right after this break. Often when we talk about national identity, especially using Benedict Anderson's model, it's as a replacement for certain institutions that have, for various reasons, lost influence. The ejection of the Catholic Church from England, for example, was largely a convenience for Henry VIII, both in allowing him to divorce his wife and in allowing him to seize assets. It was very pragmatic. The establishment of the Church of England is a byproduct of that struggle. Something extremely interesting about the Kulturkampf of the 1870s is that the intended outcome of that conflict was to eject the Catholic Church in the name of German national identity. The Peace of Westphalia had left the former empire a patchwork of religious identities, which doesn't point to homogeneity or Prussianness, which is what Bismarck was trying to establish as Germanness. What's more, it created an enemy for Germany, something to define itself against. This is an interesting early version of the conspiracy theory as nationalist ploy. There's an outside plot by the Pope, uh, by France, and by Austria, all of which are Catholic, to hold Germany back. Never mind that there might be real concerns by all of them, not least of which were wars in which Germany had been the aggressor very recently. Germany must be under attack by foreign enemies and must defend itself. The ejection of the church and the establishment of an education system teaching a standardized German, literature, the integration of economics, all of this was being done explicitly by the state to bolster the nascent German identity. All right, we're back on HI 101, and we were just talking about how Bismarck was doing a bang-up job of trying to convince everyone that Germany had been a thing forever. Here with Dan McGinnis, by the way. Bismarck's success wasn't just cultural in nature. He was also one of the most skilled statesmen Europe saw in the 19th century, and just through sheer skill, managed to basically keep Europe entirely peaceful, which is a really hard thing to do. And again, this comes back to his philosophy of realpolitik, of of doing the best thing for everyone, but especially for Germany, even in the face of sort of personal beliefs, right? The, The first thing he did was try to maintain good alliances. Now, the thing about sovereign statehood is that you're not really a state until other states recognize you as such. A lot easier to do in 1870 than it is in, you know, today. Because you call up your cousin, you say, hey, man, can you get your country to recognize me and my state? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, they were all related. It was, it was just, it was crazy back then. All related. Anyways, much easier to get recognized, but a lot harder to find friends. And that's what Bismarck was really good at. He was good at promising things to people and making it into very, very attractive offers. It was things that were beneficial for Germany, but were also beneficial to the people he was proposing them to, which makes it really hard to turn down. He was absolutely convinced that the worst thing that could ever happen to Germany 
was to be al- uh, to be enemies with Russia and France at the same time. He said from the beginning that the thing that will destroy Germany is a two-front war. He decided it was better to have Russia as an ally than France, especially the way things had just gone with the Franco-Prussian War, and really worked to keep France kind of isolated in European politics, just altogether. France didn't like this, but France already didn't like Germany, because all of a sudden Germany is the most powerful power in in Europe. They're right in the middle. They've got a super strong army, a huge population. France is used to filling that role because they're used to like 300 states off to their east that don't really pose any sort of threat whatsoever. They're not loving this new arrangement. He kind of pushed a little too hard, though. On 1870, in 1875, France almost went to war with Germany. They almost had enough to go to war. And Bismarck kind of realized that, okay, you can you can overdo this kind of thing. It was... It was the one failure that really taught him a lot about what he could pull off in terms of manipulating other European powers. Is it something worth getting into the details of? Not particularly. It was just there was a lot of there were a lot of anti-French alliances going on. There were some border disputes. It, It wasn't anything major, but it was enough that France got really fed up. They were already pretty. They were already looking for a reason after the Franco Prussian War because their pride was hurt so badly. And this is only four years later. But the, the more important thing is Bismarck learned that some restraint is necessary. You need a delicate touch. Now, did he not want to go to war to, with France again because he'd already achieved his goal of a unified Germany? Yes. Bismarck once said preemptive war is like committing suicide for fear of death. That's a good line. Dang. Bismarck has a lot of good lines. Basically, what he's saying is, I am going to avoid war at all costs. If I don't have to fight a war, I'm not going to fight a war. War's bad for everybody. I will if I have to, but no. No thanks. Not for me. That's one thing that makes him really singular as a leader with this level of power. Often they go a little overboard on the whole war thing. But he had very, very clear ideas of what war was for. War for him was a political tool, just like diplomacy, just like treaties just like economics it was one more tool for him he created what they called the reinsurance treaty with russia in 1887 which was basically a limited uh, mutual neutrality if one of them went to war with somebody the other one wouldn't get involved Hmm. so not necessarily would help but no wouldn't help wouldn't get involved at all this worked well for both of them, their kind of comfort level with each other at this point in time. They because were both, super close friends. Both of them were a little afraid of the other one, but they knew that they were relatively evenly matched and that a war would just go badly for both of them. They didn't want to get involved in that, and this was kind of formalizing it. This one wasn't super well known. They didn't really broadcast it. But treaties like this you don't really broadcast, you keep very, very private created the dual alliance with Austria-Hungary in 1879. By this point in time, the Austrian throne and the Hungarian throne had been combined into one empire. This is the Austria-Hungary you hear about at the beginning of World War I. So the dual alliance was a protection against Russian attack. So even after this, this Russian reinsurance treaty, basically, if Austria was attacked by Russia, Germany would help Austria and vice versa. It was expanded to a triple alliance with Italy in 1882, again, a mutual defense treaty, not just targeted at Russia at this point, but anyone. 
three of them said, we've got each other's backs. You just said if Russia attacked Austria, Germany would help. Mm -hmm. But what about the alliance that Germany had just signed with Russia? The thing about the treaties that Bismarck signed was that he didn't want to use any of them. He was signing treaties as a way of making sure he didn't have to cash in any of his other treaties. And keeping them all kind of on the DL because by definition some of them are completely yes absolutely and if something had gone wrong he would have had to decide which one he wanted to honor and i'm sure with bismarck it would have depended on the week and what he had had for breakfast it's it's just he played such uh you know he danced on a knife's edge it was so we what we have is the classic dating two women on the same night situation (laughs) but he had a friend helping to switch jackets it was all good he, uh, the, <laughs> I love that metaphor for Bismarck. It's actually really good. <laughs> Picture him doing it. No, he was very skilled. And I mean, he, he was, what he was really good at was convincing these people that he could be trusted. And the way he did that was by not going to war with France in 1875, by going, look, we're operating on rational grounds here. And what I do is what's best for Germany. And here's how this treaty with you is best for Germany. And here's how it's best for you. Let's make this happen. Good salesman. It's a very good salesman. One thing he really didn't want to get into, and this is another example of how flexible he could be, he really didn't want to get into the whole overseas colonies game. But the government wanted it because all major powers have colonies and we're a major power now. We need colonies. Everyone that's cool has some colonies. And the German people wanted it for the exact same reasons. The, the British have colonies. Why can't we? So they established a whole bunch of colonies in Africa and in uh, Samoa, you know, just around, as the European powers do. And that turned out well for Africans and Samoans in general. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they never profited. There were, there were two of the colonies that turned a profit eventually, years later. They were terrible for Germany. But Bismarck did it because, to him... German people coming together over this issue was more important than the actual colonies themselves. This was German people going, listen, we're Germans, and Germany is a great power, right? And great powers do this, right? So if we do this, this just reinforces that we're a great power. Perfect. That's what he wants. Yeah, let's oppress some some indigenous people. (laughs) Yeah, there is that whole issue. Boy, colonialism was bad. But they did it because that's what they felt like they had to do. And I mean, he was opposed to it on economic grounds, not on any sort of like moral grounds. (laughs) I want to be very clear on that. So in the 1880s, Bismarck, the the staunch imperialist, the incredibly conservative statesman, the, the enemy of socialists, hated socialists, hated socialism, thought it was the worst. In the 1880s, he created the world's first uh, welfare state. Ah. Did he? Why would he do that, Dan? Uh, uh, well, obviously it's because it was, was what was best for Germany. Absolutely. You know how? It was taking the, uh, it was taking the air out of the uh, socialist swings. <laughs> it was just, well, if, if we give them all of these things they're asking for, then they don't have to go to the socialists anymore. We're giving it to them. That is literally the reason he created the world's first welfare state. (laughs) 
Realpolitik is sweet. Oh, it's it's so good sometimes. And and I mean, honestly, it's it's yielding really good results for Germany at this point in time. Pragmatism. It's hey. amazing how well it works. So he instituted things like safe working conditions, limiting work hours, restrictions on work for children, which I guess is probably a good idea. Various types of insurance, medical, disability, pension. <laughs> In the 1880s, this was a big thing. This is this is when you still have like American five-year-olds working in the factories and getting arms ripped off, and stayed that way for the next half century. Yep. No, it was a big deal, and it was all to stick it to the to the socialists. <laughs> Take that. Have everything you want. He was he was actually really taking a hard run at the socialists at the, in the 1880s, but in 1888, Wilhelm I died. Wilhelm's son, Friedrich III, when he ascended to the throne, already had terminal throat cancer. Oh. He was German emperor for 99 days. He spent that entire time fighting the cancer. Did he have a wife? A British wife. Did they both really respect Victoria's first husband? Well, in fact, uh, the wife was the daughter of Victoria. Then, then they probably had a pretty solid respect for Victoria's husband. Absolutely. Yeah. I expect they liked Albert. Okay, mm-hmm. I kind of know some stuff about this guy, actually. Interesting. Yeah. There's I, am, not... I am super, super duper sad that uh, he only got to be emperor for 99 days. It's, it's unfortunate that he ended up being a footnote, but I, I, I like his... That's a bad way to start this. I like his story in that it kind of reminds you that these people that you read about in the history books, they're just regular people, and sometimes something like throat cancer will throw them off just as it would anyone else. They are not immortal. They're not gods. They're just they're just people who happen to have been born into the right family. Yep. This was known as the Year of the Three Emperors, for obvious reasons. Friedrich III's son, Wilhelm II, came into power. Before you get into him... I do highly recommend looking into Friedrich III. He had plans to modernize and revolutionize a whole bunch of things. I'm sure he did. I don't know a lot of things about him. I I would be interested in reading more. Obviously, in terms of the scope of what we're talking about today, he he warrants one point on my page. Yeah. Which is sad, but... So sad. He he had plans, man. I look forward to looking into that. Might have a contentious statement coming from... From me, but speculation is difficult. Things would have been different. Yep, because instead we got Wilhelm II, and he was kind of a jerk. That's not fair. He wasn't a jerk. He was just kind of an idiot. Yeah, that's more fair. Wilhelm II. Wilhelm II was not cut out for rule. Let's put it that way. There are a lot of a lot of people theorize as to why. I don't think it matters personally. But it's fun to speculate on. It just, yeah, yeah, it certainly is. Well, he had a he had a crippled left arm, and uh, a lot of people speculate that he was very coddled as a child. But his mother was very insistent that he be able to do everything that a young emperor should be able to do, and so he got a combination of people protecting him from the w- real world and insistence that he could do anything he ever wanted 
because he is the emperor and all he has to do is ask and people will make it happen for him no matter how difficult. Was he the son of Friedrich III? Yes. Okay. So he was Wilhelm I's grandson. Now, Friedrich III and his wife weren't actually big fans of Bismarck. And they tried... And so Bismarck tried to kind of separate Wilhelm II from them a little bit in terms of influence. When, when Wilhelm II comes to power, he's 29. Like, he's not, he's not a boy. He's not... He, he should... He should be old enough that with his life, he should have the tools he needs to start running an empire. Mm -hmm. As someone almost that age, that thought terrifies me. But when you're groomed for it from from birth, you you have those tools. You're ready to go. Yeah. And have a lot of very competent people to help you along the way. Wilhelm II did not take well to this. He really disliked Bismarck. He resented his his attempts to separate him influentially from his parents. He felt that because he grew up in a Germany that was so strong, he felt like, why not more? He felt that, I mean, he, he wanted expansionism. He may have been goaded by advisors. We're not sure, but he really wanted to make a bigger Germany. He wanted to really stick it to the other powers. And he was sort of a, I don't mean this derogatorily, but he was a simple enough guy in his world outlook that he saw that as basically being as easy as going to war with them. Why not? We'll just beat them and then we'll be the best. Bismarck's been playing this game, this, this massive chess game with all of Europe for the past 20 years. And he's going, no, that's not how you do this. What are you doing, kid? Stop messing with my board. He's been, he's been chancellor of Germany for since, since 1871. And he's been working in this general role in Prussia since 1862. He's seen a few things. When does Wilhelm II ascend? In 1888. Long time. Yeah. They clashed a lot over a lot of different issues. And the thing that I admire most about Bismarck is that he didn't just turn this into a giant power struggle. He tried really hard to explain to Wilhelm why he was trying to do the things he was doing. He tried really hard to kind of put his cards on the table and say, listen, I'm being friendly towards this person because we need him for X, Y, Z, and he will help us with A, B, C. And Wilhelm just didn't want it. He didn't want to hear about it. He felt like he had to be involved in every single aspect of ruling, unlike his grandfather, who was very good at staying out of it. And it kind of all came to a head when there was this uh, dispute between a coal miner union and the government Bismarck basically wanted to just steamroll them <laughs> because they're socialists yeah oh, okay well it, they, can, they were can trying they be to in the mine <laughs> they were they were unionizing but they were unionizing in a way that was starting to kind of overstep things in his mind today it would probably be seen as fairly reasonable Wilhelm II looked at it, and he also saw it as reasonable, and decided to take the coal miners' side to the point of going to the site of the protests. The emperor did. The emperor did. Yep. He was the emperor, and he did this. Uh, it's hard to wrap your head around. Probably didn't help that he had his grandfather's name. Yeah, exactly. Some comparisons may occur. Bismarck resigned. Oh. He couldn't handle it anymore. He was basically forced to resign by Wilhelm II. He said, listen, I'm not listening to you anymore. I'm not doing what you say. I'm going to override anything you do. 
And Bismarck said, fine, there's nothing I can do about this. And he resigned because he's a man who knows when he's beaten. Even after that, he continued to go to Wilhelm from time to time and try and give him advice. Man, you could make such a movie out of this. Oh, it would be an incredible movie. I would love to watch a movie about Bismarck. I'm sure there are very good German ones that we're just not familiar with. Uh. <laughs> In 1897, he went to Wilhelm and he told him, listen, the way that you're running things, this is sustainable. You can keep this up as long as you've got the officers you have in command right now in command because these are the men who served under your grandfather and I know they're competent men and they will keep you from getting into trouble. As soon as you lose these officers, you can't keep doing this or Germany will crumble. He also told him something and I actually wrote it down because it's, it's an interesting quote. He said, Jena came 20 years after the death of Frederick the Great. The crash will come 20 years after my departure if things go on like this. Jena was one of the two battles that the Holy Roman Empire lost to Napoleon. 20 years to the month after the death of Frederick the Great, who was Wilhelm's ancestor, who had been a king of Prussia and a very well-regarded one. Mm. He said this in July 1898. He died a few months later. 20 years to the month after his death, Wilhelm II was forced to resign at the end of World War I. He abdicated the throne, effectively ending that epoch of German empire. This is what people refer to as the Second Reich when they talk about the Third Reich being the Nazis. The Second Reich was from 1871 to 1918. And fell 20 years after. After the death of Bismarck. And thus Bismarck drops the mic from beyond the grave. It's incredible. Post-Bismarck Germany just turned into a huge mess. He basically, Wilhelm II managed to basically undo everything good Bismarck had done. Let's run down those. i just like to note, he loved boats. Wilhelm II did. He got himself made honorary admiral in most of the navies of Europe. (laughs) Honorary admiral? Keep in mind, he was a grandson, he was a grandson of Victoria. Mm Mm-hmm. Every monarch in Europe was related to him by no more than first cousin, either by marriage or by blood. Yeah. So he had a habit of sailing up to British battleships in his British admiral uniform and demanding to inspect them. (laughs) Now, did he do this during the war? I think they didn't let him after, like, during the war. I'm pretty sure they stopped letting him. But he, that's, that's the thing that's, like, it's such a good distillation of Wilhelm II. This is the kind this is the kind of thing that occupied his time. This man is a caricature. He is. He should never have been running a country. I I'm, he should have been the guy building model train sets in his basement. He would have been really good at that and maybe managing a small retail store on the side. <laughs> he would have been perfect for that. He's he's the poster child of what's wrong with inherited nobility. He he really really is. He was more willing to negotiate with, say, socialists or, say, with the Catholic Center Party, which gave him a little bit of strength. But, I mean, those are two tiny points positive to, like, dozens of negative. Uh, To essentially firing Bismarck, the greatest statesman to have lived in modern times. They could have had another eight years of Bismarck. He would have kept serving. He was in his 80s when he died. He would have served right up until his last breath. And Germany would have been better for it. It's hard to speculate, but that one I'm willing to put a little bit of money on. Yep. 
he really wanted to be like Britain. He sort of envied them and despised them at the same time. It's sort of a weird relationship that he had with them. Uh, he didn't renew the reinsurance treaty with Russia. He felt like his relationship with Russia was good enough. Hmm. He's, he's cool with the Tsar. They're cool. Russia, as a consequence, kind of fell away from their friendship with, uh, with Germany. In 1898, he appointed a new secretary of the Navy named Alfred von Tirpitz. Tirpitz's main goal in life was to build a bigger navy than Britain's. Bigger navy than Britain's. Bigger navy than Britain's. I should note that the chancellorship after um, Bismarck, Bismarck served for ages as chancellor, turned into a string of practically like i i can't Nobody's. name yeah I, I can think of one name of another chancellor and it was the guy right after bismarck and it's because he was a terrible replacement for bismarck yeah they were they were they were meaningless wilhelm yeah. ii did all the work of the chancellor in the chancellor's place badly you gotta sympathize with bismarck's successor though i mean fair of of all the people to follow it, yeah it's it's incredibly unfair but you know that's the way it is a book by a guy named Alfred Thayer Mahan called The Influence of Sea Power Upon History was translated into German and distributed to the masses. It was about how important it is to build giant battleships in order to be a world power. They were big on the Navy. Uh, they, and they, they, like, they really started production on this Navy. And it made everyone super nervous because it was sort of established that Britain is the guy with the Navy. They do the naval things. You don't challenge Britain kind of the balance it's kind of the balance and you don't want to upset that balance a thing that bismarck understood very very well wilhelm ii openly supported the boers in the boer war in 1900 I, I, against the how british did, how did that turn out not so great it turned out well during the boxer rebellion he felt that the german soldiers should fall upon the chinese like huns like their like their ancestors, the Huns. <laughs> this is how you get the the propaganda calling Germans Huns during the First World War. Uh, it came from this statement that he said, which was in super bad taste. To put it lightly, even, even before racism was a thing. Even in 1904, there was an agreement called the Entente Cordiale between Britain and France against Germany. If Germany keeps on like this, let's let's watch each other's back. By 1914, Austria-Hungary was Germany's only remaining ally in Europe. Spoilers, 1914 is the year that World War I started. That's where we're going to end, because as much as I would love to get into the Great War, we simply don't have time. But in the course of 24, 26 years, Wilhelm systematically alienated every one of Germany's allies. Every single one. The thing that's amazing about the unification of Germany is how short-lived it was, how dependent on one man it was, how badly it fell apart at the end. And yet through all of that was really, really successful at establishing a German identity to the point that we talk about Germans and Germany for, for centuries before there was any such thing. That's, that's some good marketing. It was incredibly well done. It's, successes and failures are all sort of rooted in this 19th century concept of the nation state and what that should mean what it should mean to have sovereign power over a territory what it should mean to have a united nation within one state and how nation states to should relate to one another relate to one another to create 
a peaceful balance between the great powers. It was the best failed experiment that Europe had to put forward in the 19th century. I don't normally subscribe to the whole great man power, uh, theory of history, this idea that one person shapes the course of all of humanity. But there are definitely a few notable exceptions, and Bismarck goes on my list, because without that man at the reins, I would be surprised if we would have anything close to the United Germany that we have today. He made it all happen himself. It's possible somebody else could have done it, but he did it so masterfully and changed so much, not about not just about war and not just about nation building, but about politics and about diplomacy, that our world would, would look completely different had there been no no Bismarck. So that's the story of the unification of Germany in the 1870s and several decades on either side. It's quite the ride. Mm-hmm. Anything that comes to mind in the way of final questions or? No, that's, that's a pretty clear picture. I, I can't think of anything that, that, uh, that is a gap in, in putting it together. That's good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the program today with me. Thank you for having me. So that's our episode on German unification. The Germany that Bismarck left behind had a strong culture and weak leadership. They had an internalized national story that included not only unity, but a well-deserved stretch of several decades holding their own against the greatest powers in Europe. And although their leadership had become ineffective, at the end of World War I, that national story left many people with difficulty believing that Germany might have lost the war through conventional means. This combination of a narrative of strength, a nation of deserving people ascendant, and betrayal, poor leadership and possibly conspiracy undercutting German destiny, would leave fertile soil for new and radical ideas to take hold in Germany. But we'll talk about that another time soon. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I wasn't sure why Wilhelm I wasn't crowned at the same time that France surrendered during the Franco-Prussian War. It turns out that actually was the original plan, but at the last moment they found out France was willing to fight a little bit longer than they were expecting. Coronations aren't easy things to reschedule, so they just went ahead with it while France fought for 10 more days. That correction and more are on the site. You can find them under episodes 5 and 6. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, hi101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.